Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Let's start tonight with a short update on COVID-19. I cannot tell you how excited I will be when I don't have to say that ever again. I don't actually think that's going to happen these days. Um, my optimism is flagging a bit. Um, but hopefully I, at some point in the far future, uh, we won't have to be constantly thinking about it. It will be something more akin to the flu where you get a flu shot and you're going to be mostly fine unless you have some sort of, um, underlying condition or other thing that makes you more susceptible. That's the fingers crossed, uh, hope for COVID-19 in the future. So thinking of that, it looks like Omicron is going to become the dominant strain in the U.S. in the very near future. Now, researchers think this is because of a couple of factors. One one you've probably already known about, which is that the strain has a variety of mutations that set it apart from previous versions of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. This means that the vaccine we've been we've been giving are not well as well designed to combat this particular version. New data suggests that even with the booster, you may still end up getting Omicron. But the good news is. So far, it looks like having the booster helps reduce the chances that you'll be affected with serious disease. And so a lot of people are saying if you get the booster, it brings you back up to a high amount of immunity. And it seems like much with the two-dose virus um, vaccine, excuse me, um, the real win is preventing uh, serious disease. And especially with strains like Delta, you already saw that people were getting breakthrough infections. And so it looks like breakthrough infections are going to become even more um, of a regular occurrence with the rise of Omicron. So if you haven't gotten your booster yet, definitely, definitely go and get it. Um, especially if you got the J&J vaccine. Um, it looks like the J&J is not necessarily as good against Omicron as the mRNA virus uh, vaccines. And so, um, yeah, definitely you need to get a vex- you need to get a booster as soon as possible. The other reason that Omicron may quickly outstrip Delta, is that there is evidence that this variant multiplies very quickly in the bronchus. And so those are the tubes that carry air from the windpipe to the actual lungs themselves. And it may do so up to 70 times faster than Delta. Now, this is still preliminary research, but it would go a long way to explaining how the virus spreads so rapidly among populations. And in fact, it's actually surprised a lot of epidemiologists just how fast it is moving into populations and rising. The same researchers found that it seemed not to replicate as fast as Delta in the actual cells of the lungs, though. And so this may lead to milder illness. However, we are definitely going to have to wait for more data to see just what the outcome really is. So for now, we are seeing more mild symptoms, but that again might be simply because a lot of the people who were exposed had been previously vaccinated. And so we haven't seen and we don't yet have the data from it interacting with a large population of unvaccinated people. And so even from other places that had seen hits to their population before the U.S. And so unfortunately, uh, they call um, 
you know, hospitalizations and deaths are a lagging uh, figure. And so it takes a while to, for those to come through into data sets. And so it may be that it leads to milder disease, or it may be that that's just an artifact of how many people have been vaccinated. Now, either way, again, the best thing to do is to get a booster and to keep a mask on as much as possible wherever, you, whenever you're indoors, be, be wearing a mask unless you are actually eating um, or if you're in your own home, obviously. <laughs> um, but if you're outside, um, at, if you're somewhere in public, definitely wear a mask if you're indoors. Um, you know, I'm not going to yet say that we have to go back to uh, lockdown conditions, um, though that may be on the horizon. But um, yeah, definitely need to go back to being more cautious than we might have been in the last several um, or in the last couple of months while past the second dosage. Um, and I'm just thinking of all the people that I've seen out and about who aren't wearing masks. And I'm assuming for my own sanity that a lot of them have been vaccinated and they just assume, well, I'm vaccinated, so I don't need a mask. Um, but I think it might be time for people to put the masks back on um, unless they have some weird uh, reason for not wanting to actually help themselves and the community. Um, but anyways, um, views and opinions are my own. Um, and so there are also two kind of major uh, competing theories of how the virus actually developed. And so the first suggests it evolved in the system of an immunocompromised person and thus had time to develop and change before moving on to someone else. The other idea is that it may have been transmitted to and from an animal. Researchers in China suspect that the temporary reservoir for the variant may have been mice. Collectively, our results suggest that the progenitor of Omicron jumped from humans to mice, rapidly accumulated mutations conducive to infecting that host, then jumped back into humans, indicating an interspecies evolutionary trajectory for the Omicron outbreak, they wrote. Now again, we have to caution that this is preliminary data, and it has not yet undergone peer review. However, we do know that COVID is found in other animals. Uh, so, for instance, we've been a little bit worried about uh, how rapidly it is spread in deer populations right here in the United States. Um, and we also do know that zoonotic infection, infection from um, other animals, is common with coronaviruses. So, um, we have to watch out for bats and um, other animals. Other mammals um, are often the original vector for coronaviruses and um, other infections. So, for instance, you know, you think of uh, the swine flu and the bird flu that, um, you know, zoonotic infection is something that is a definite issue. And as a complete and utter side note, um, <laughs> just because I think it's an interesting fact, uh, and it always helps to think about things that are not COVID. Uh, if you actually, uh, there's some evidence to suggest that when humans initially began to, uh, actual, actually do animal husbandry, that when they moved from being nomadic to, um, being sedentary and being a pastoralists, that their uh, overall health actually went down. Um, you probably know this already, but I always think it's interesting that people think about, you know, agriculture and pastoralism as being really important to the development of um, the uh, human civilization, but it also kind of wrecked our wrecked our health for a little bit because we were in close contact with animals we hadn't been in close contact before and we got zoonotic infections from them. Um, so just interesting. Okay, so 
On a brighter note, related to COVID, so this is good, it looks like the anti-COVID-19 drug Paxlovid from Pfizer did much better in the second round of testing uh, as opposed to the competitor Merck's weak second round showing. And so, as we noted last week, the drug works very differently from Merck's Molnupiravir, and so it does not have the possibility of mutagenic effects, and it seems to work a whole heck of a lot better. And so, Paxlovid actually works by inhibiting a viral protein called protease. And so, protease is used by the virus to break chemical bonds and other proteins in order to convert them into their final functional form. This transformation is crucial to the virus being able to copy its genome, and so by inhibiting the protease, you block the virus from reproducing. And so, in other good news, the drug seems, in early trials, to bind properly to the protease found in the Omicron virus, as well as Delta and other earlier variants. Now, the data indicates a drop in hospitalizations and deaths of 89% in high-risk patients, identified as those who were unvaccinated and at high risk due to age or health issues. In this part of the trial, data from over 2,000 participants is available, and less than 1% of the people who received the drug were hospitalized, compared to 6.5% in the placebo group. No one in the drug group died, while nine people in the placebo group unfortunately passed away. They found that around the same amount of effectiveness was found when administered up to five days after the onset of symptoms, though the recommending, uh, they recommend that you try and take it as soon after you've been diagnosed as possible. And so overall, there was a 94% reduction in relative risk in those over the age of 65. In a second trial, they tested moderate-risk people who were either unvaccinated but without risk factors or those who were vaccinated but had some sort of risk factor. Again, treatment was started within the first few days of a confirmed infection. The data for 673 of these patients has so far been uh, released. And so there was a 70% reduction in hospitalizations and no deaths in the treatment group. Now, there were also no deaths in the placebo group, but there were more hospitalizations, though less than that in the high-risk group as expected. Now, while all that sounds really promising, there is a small hitch, and it's not the worst, but, you know, you definitely want to uh, talk about this, which is that apparently the drug didn't actually lessen the symptoms people were actually experiencing, and so basically it didn't make them feel any better. Uh, it kept them from developing worse uh, symptoms, it seems, but the symptoms that they already had, it didn't really help with. Um, so if you already felt crummy, you continued to feel crummy. Uh, it just didn't move into, you know, needing to be moved into the hospital. Um, and so that's that's disappointing. You always want it to make you feel better. Um but the other thing is, is that it didn't seem to suffer from any specific side effects. Um, and so basically they determined, they were able to determine that the drug given, um, that the, the reported side effects of the drug, uh, were roughly equal between the people who were actually given the drug and people in the control group. And in fact, slightly more people in the placebo group actually left the study after complaining of side effects. And so from a strict public health perspective, having people avoid hospitalization and especially death is really the best case scenario at the moment. Um, obviously it would be great if it also made the people feel better, but at least they'll live to complain about it. Um, and so, yeah, this looks like it's a lot more, um, promising. And of course it's not a guarantee. We all know that, you know, sometimes a study looks great and then you get into a larger population and other things happen or it doesn't work as well. Um, you know, it's, it's very promising, but it's not going to be a silver bullet. Um, and so again, people should continue to do 
all of the things that they can do to avoid getting infected in the first place. And so uh, the only other drawback is actually uh, the fact that obviously uh, it's still in trial. Um, so the drug won't be available right away. Uh, Pfizer hopes to have it ready for early next year, but of course that won't necessarily be in time to be useful for the almost inevitable surge due to holiday travel and gatherings. So um, I think it was last week that I said, don't invite your unvaccinated relatives. Tell them to to be on Zoom. Um, I think you might want to start considering having a Zoom holiday altogether, um, especially if you have loved ones who are at high risk. Um, I was watching an interview with a professor at Baylor College um, who studies infectious diseases, and he said, you know, he had been looking forward to having his uh, in-laws come up and to be able to show them around the city. And because of this, he has canceled those um, plans because, you know, they're elderly and he does not want to uh, risk their health by having them come for the holidays. And so if people like that are canceling their in-person holiday plans, uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of people might want to consider that. Um, I was happy to hear that my uh, partner had already planned to be Zooming the holiday rather than uh, attending um, because of the fact that their family uh, occasionally is uh, in contact with people who are not unvaccinated and are, are who are unvaccinated. Um, and so... Um, yeah, I am very happy that those plans had already been made, um, because I would be very worried if they were going to be in person. And in fact, I have, uh, already been basically, uh, I had been going into the office for the last couple of months. Um, but my boss, uh, had said the other day that, you know, we should plan on working from home for a while. Um, and we just got an email recently that that might be, uh, moving forward that might continue. And so, um, I'm actually very happy that I took home a bunch of things in case this happened. Um, and so I brought my, uh, nice ergonomic mouse and my, um, I even brought my, uh, electric kettle home so I can make tea at home. Um, and so not that I couldn't put water in a pot, but it's fancy and, uh, you know, I enjoy it and it's not going to get any use in the office. So I might as well bring it home and use it. Um, so yeah, <sighs> but hopefully we'll continue to develop better vaccines. And as I know, you're probably sick of hearing me say, we will hopefully start distributing those vaccines to people in the global south so that hopefully we can contain the rise of even more variants. Because the more people who are actually vaccinated, the more we are able to prevent the virus from having reservoirs in which it can develop new um, variants. Now, of course, there is some worry about that uh, issue with the mice, um, but I'm going to hope that it was actually an immunocompromised person for the moment, uh, just because that's not a great um, situation if it did go from mice, from humans to mice and back to humans again. Um, it seems a little bit fast for me to have done that, but, you know, I'm not, uh, I am you know, not an expert in any way, shape or form. Um, and so if that's happening, that's a little bit more worrisome. But um, again, the more people we get vaccinated, the more, the more, the quicker this can be taken care of. Um, and so, you know, we know what's preventing people from getting vaccinated, which is, of course, patent law and corporate greed. And so, um, 
it's really important to uh, keep reminding people of that and keep reminding people that uh, there's a solution. It's just that capitalism doesn't like that solution. Um, so yeah, anyways, let's talk about a win as far as I'm concerned. Um, if you disagree, you're wrong. Um, <laughs> sorry. It's just, this is one of those places where I'm like, if you disagree with me, you are just wrong. Um, it's, it's not quite that, um, uh, black and white, but anyways, so the FDA has permanently lifted the restriction on an abortion medication. And so this means that women across the country will have easier access to uh, mail order, basically, abortion medications. And so um, the FDA has removed the requirement that mifepristone, why are drugs always, ugh, the names, I have, I have enough trouble with people's names. Stop naming your drugs very weird things. <laughs> Anyways, uh, which is one half of the uh, two-part abortion regime. Uh, they have removed the requirement that it be dispensed in person. And so obviously this is a win for groups that support public health and reproductive rights and who have been pressuring the FDA to do this for years. And this is not just quote unquote special interest groups. This is also uh, orga large organizations of physicians and people who um, know that this is a safe and effective treatment and there's no reason for it to be restricted in the way that it was. And so um, in conjunction with the drug misoprostol, it enables women to have an abortion within the first 10 weeks of pregnancy. The treatment is safe and effective and hat. We've known that for a long time at this point. And in fact, I've actually known people who have used it and, you know, they felt pretty terrible for a few days, um, but didn't have any long-term side effects and it worked as it was supposed to. And so the ban had been temporarily removed during COVID for a time because obviously people were having trouble going to see a doctor in person. Um, but the Trump administration uh, basically sued to have it reinstated. And so it's really nice to see that the ban has been permanently removed um, at this point by the Biden administration, though obviously if the tables turn again, it could be put back on. Um, but obviously in some ways, it can't come at a better time uh, because, again, we might be going into a new lockdown. And so, yeah, I am very happy about this. Um, I'll just note that, you know, this is a common sense ruling and that abortions are simply a medical procedure and they should be between a woman and her doctor and no one else unless the woman wishes to share it with them. And that's pretty much my uh, stance uh, very, very succinctly and um, strongly. <laughs> um, and so let's move on. And we're going to talk about brains for a moment. Um, and so actually, we're going to take a short break before we talk about brains. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I can't help but do the zombie voice. Uh, let us take a break and do some PSAs and some show promos, and then we'll come back and talk about the brain and why it's it's so hungry. The, the zombie jokes are just going to keep popping up, um, but I promise I won't uh, bore you with them. All right, hang on for just a few moments, and then we'll come back and talk about the brain. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. 
Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. Now I feel fine. Hey, it's D.O. from the Enviro Show, which is the Valley's only local radio show devoted solely to environmental issues right here on WXOJLP Valley Free Radio. That's right, and I'm Glenn reminding you that we're at 103.3 FM and streaming live at valleyfreeradio.org every Tuesday from 6 to 7 p.m. And not so live on Thursdays at 2. And since it's the end of the world as we know it, why not spend your last hour with us? Exactly. We'll help you cope with the end of the world without resorting to drugs, or Facebook, even though we are on Facebook. And online at enviroshow.wordpress. This is Tony Baca. When I'm in town or even traveling, I listen to Rick Haggerty kicking it for peace, culture, and education on 103.3 FM Northampton or valleyfreeradio.org. The views and opinions expressed on WXOJL. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. When I grow up... I want to be a new pair of blue jeans. When I grow up, I want to be a kid's first computer. I want to be a warm place on a day. Football I want to be a bike that races around the country. I want to be a bench on a forest trail. When I grow up, I don't want to be a piece of garbage. And if you recycle me, I won't be. Give your garbage another life. Recycle. Learn how at IWantToBeRecycled.org. Brought to you by Keep America Beautiful and the Ad Council. Hello, everybody. I'm DJ Panic, host of OK Asia. I bring you a wide selection of Asian artists, combining genres like rock, pop, hip-hop, and R&B every Saturday at 12 a.m. with a repeat show on Mondays at 1 a.m. on Valley Free Radio. By now, you have heard that using compact fluorescent light bulbs, or CFLs, can save you money on your energy bill. But have you heard that there is a law requiring Massachusetts residents to recycle them? Keep in mind, they can't be recycled curbside, so do your part. Drop off your used CFLs at your local participating retailer. For more information on recycling and where to do it, visit lamprecycle.org Massachusetts. And okay, we are back. Um, yeah, it's been a long week. Um... <laughs> So forgive me for being a little bit scattered today. Um, okay, we are going to talk about brains. Um, apparently mine needs some more calories right now. <laughs> um, okay, so you've probably heard this statistic before, uh, that your brain uses up to around 20% of the calories required to keep your body going each day. 
it's very, very calorie hungry. Um, and it's the reason kind of that a lot of animals don't evolve large, complex brains for the most part. They're too, uh, what's called energetically expensive. And so there's no point in having a big, complex, calorie hungry brain if you live in conditions where calories aren't readily or consistently available. And especially if you're already, you know, adapted to where you are and you don't need to have all of that processing power in order to figure things out. So if you are an animal that already is adapted with a small brain, there's not really a big push to, uh, evolutionarily at least, um, in order to push you towards getting a large brain. Now there's other evolutionary reasons, but energy consumption, the energy consumption factor is definitely a large one. Now we used to believe that the energy was consumed by the constant electrical signaling between neurons in the cell, which burns a large amount of ATP or adenosine 5 triphosphate. Now, you may remember from a high school <laughs> science class, um, or from, you know, whatever higher education that you have, um, you may have studied chemistry and biology. Sorry, I don't, um, <laughs> so ATP is the fuel storage for cells, basically. Um, obviously it's more complicated than that, but that's the easy way to explain it. Now, in recent years, we actually found out that the brains of people who were in comas or vegetative states still had brains that consumed a lion's share of energy. According to senior author Timothy Ryan, a professor of biochemistry at the Wheel Cornell Medicine um, in New York City, and so, writing in the journal Science Advances, Ryan and his team think that they've discovered the answer. It turns out that it may be in the synapses, or rather, the tiny vesicles they release to convey neurotransmitters to other synapses. Now, previous research by the team showed that the synapses themselves use up a lot of energy, but in the latest research, they showed that the vesicles are perhaps the largest consumers of energy. In order to study the process, the researchers knocked out various pumps on the surface of the vesicles that move neurotransmitters and other molecules in and out, thus depriving the system of fuel. They then imaged the synapses using a fluorescent microscope to determine the amount of ATP the synapses had burned. They actually found that a proton pump was responsible for around 44% of all the energy used in the resting synapse. When they looked for the reason why this was happening, they found that the proton pump was permanently at work and burning ATP because the vesicles were constantly leaking protons. So again, this involves a bit of biochemistry. Um, and so because the synapses are constantly ready to fire off, they pre-pack the vesicles with neurotransmitters. They do this with the help of a pump on the surface of the vesicles. This transporter pump, protein pump, changes shape in order to carry neurotransmitters inside and exchanges them for a proton inside the vesicles. It then changes shape again and spits the proton out of the vesicle. Now, part of the reason that this is so energetically expensive is that the this process requires that the vesicles have more protons within themselves than in the surrounding um in in their surroundings because this is about um it's about having the ability to move those protons into somewhere where there are less protons um and so the issue is that the protein pump is again, a bit of a perpetual motion machine. Um, unfortunately, it's absolutely not a perpetual, perpetual motion machine because it's using up a lot of energy um, in order to keep going. And so even when the vesicles are filled with neurotransmitters, the pump continues to spit out protons. 
Thus, this requires the proton pump to keep working in order to refill the pool of protons within the vesicles. So we discovered what is sort of an inefficiency in it, Ryan said, and the leakage is small, but if you add up trillions of leakages together, it ends up being quite a large expense, even without any electrical activity. And so it turns out that the trade-off of inefficiency is the ability for the synapses to be able to fire almost instantaneously, and thus to allow for very quick responses. And so evolution seems to have found that this confers a better survival quotient than the loss of energy for the animal. Now, this study was conducted in rats, um, but this is one of the mechanisms that is highly conserved and therefore will most likely be applicable to humans in a direct way. And in fact, Ryan suggests it may even have clinical applications with the possibility of better understanding of diseases such as Parkinson's, where it may be that the brain doesn't have enough ATP to keep systems running properly. And so that is very cool um, to be able to find out what exactly is going on there. Um, I'm still, there was, there was a description that I was looking for that I cannot pull up in my mind. I'm sorry. Um, it's about the, um, different differentials between, um, spaces with more and less protons, but, um, it's escaping me tonight. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, keeping in the brain for a moment, uh, human brains specifically. Researchers at the University of Minnesota Medical School have published an extensive data set that uses cutting-edge, high-field fMRI technology to examine how humans perceive, interpret, and memorize naturalistic photographs. The Natural Scenes data set will help researchers to develop better knowledge in cognitive and computational neuroscience. Deciphering how the human visual system works is a heavily studied topic, but progress is limited by our sampling of how the brain responds to and interprets different visual stimuli, said co-senior author Kendrick K., Ph.D., an assistant professor of radiology and a researcher at the Center for Magnetic Resonance Research at the University of Minnesota Medical School. <laughs> this publicly shared resource will catalyze the development of advanced computational methods and models and machine learning techniques that will shed light into brain function, according to a press release. Now, the researchers suggest that the database can allow other researchers to train deep learning models that predict brain activity, and that the NSD can be a bridge between modern AI algorithms as well as animal models. This data set is part of a growing effort in cognitive neuroscience to deeply sample a small number of individuals, said co-senior author Thomas Nasolaris, PhD, an associate professor of neuroscience and CMRR researcher. Gathering extensive data on each individual opens the possibility of developing precise and individualized characterizations of brain structure and function. This will lay the groundwork for precision medicine efforts. So that's pretty neat. And again, potentially not a minute too soon. <laughs> because it turns out that despite all of the good things that neural networks can accomplish, they're still a bit of a locked box to us. Um, MIT scientists have recently identified a cause for concern in imaging neural networks. Uh, and they're... Basically, uh, they're calling it overinterpretation. And so this occurs when algorithms make confident predictions based on scant evidence, a bit of the border of an image or a random pattern that makes no sense to humans. Now, you might think that's not a big deal, is it? But this could be a big deal in applications like, for instance, self-driving cars and in medical diagnostics for disease. It's especially worrying in self-driving cars, where such systems are used to understand the surroundings and make appropriate adjustments. 
the network used specific backgrounds, edges, or particular patterns of the sky to classify traffic lights and street signs without regard for what else might have been in the picture. Networks trained on a popular data set, CIFAR-10, made confident predictions even when 95% of the image was missing and the remainder was senseless to humans. So that 5% was just a senseless mismatch uh, for humans, but the, you know, machine learning algorithm was like, oh, I've seen that before. Overinterpretation is a is a dataset problem that's caused by these nonsensical signals in datasets. Not only are these high-confidence images unrecognizable, but they contain less than 10% of the original image in unimportant areas such as borders. We found that these images were meaningless to humans, yet models can still classify them with high confidence, said Brandon Carter, MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory PhD student and lead author on a paper about the research. Deep image classifiers are used in a variety of applications. They work by processing individual pixels from tons of pre-labeled images in order for the network to learn. Image classification is hard because the models can latch onto these nonsensical subtle signs. And though this can lead to issues in the real world, in the data set, they don't raise a flag because the data set is known and thus the network is guessing correctly, even if that recognition is from an odd part of the image, which makes it hard to detect. So if you have a neural imaging uh, algorithm and it's consistently giving you the right answers, you're going to think, oh, it's working correctly. But they've figured out that it might not be working correctly in the way that you think it is. Um, And so the researchers in this case started with a full image and removed pixels until the system could no longer recognize the photo in order to figure out which parts the network was latching onto. And so they suggest that this kind of um, testing could be leveraged to create a validation criteria. For example, if a neural network is set up to identify a stop sign, you can test to see if the part of the image the system has locked onto is the sign itself or some incidental part of the image, such as the pole, a tree branch, or even the way that the shadows lay. In the end, this is probably more a problem with the datasets than the AI. There's the question of how we can modify the datasets in a way that would enable models to be trained to more closely mimic how a human would think about classifying images and therefore, hopefully, generalize better in these real-world scenarios, like autonomous driving and medical diagnosis, so that the models don't have this nonsensical behavior, says Carter. Now, currently, the datasets are based on public domain images, but they may need to be reworked in order to have the object in question isolated with a neutral background in order to minimize the possibility that some other part of the picture will be stored as the identifier for future reference. And so they actually showed some of the pictures and it was crazy. Uh, There was like a picture of a uh, golden retriever on a lawn And the pixels that the uh, AI had used to identify that picture were just like a little sliver of the the border of the grass. And so it just knew that, oh, that grass equals the golden retriever. (laughs) Um, But you can see where that might be problematic when you're using an algorithm on something like self-driving cars. And so, yeah, definitely a bit of a worrisome uh, outcome. But it doesn't mean, again, like there's probably ways to solve that problem. Um, And I think it's really great that these uh, researchers kind of thought outside the box and were able to figure this out um, because it will definitely help. I think if they try and retrain the AIs on more minimalistic pictures, um, that will probably help a lot. Um, so I don't think it's an insurmountable issue, but it's a really interesting one that, um, you know, it's definitely one of those who would have thunk it kind of things. Um, but AI can do a lot of very cool things. So DeepMind, DeepMind, uh, known for learning and mastering games. Uh, it was especially famous for mastering the game of Go. Um, 
among an other, you know, host of other proof of concept applications that are pretty neat. Um, just as an, just as an acknowledgement, uh, DeepMind is a sister company of Google. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, it has a lot of really good applications and also the potential to be very scary. But anyways, we're not talking about that part. We're talking about it actually being super helpful to mathematicians. And so for the first time, machine learning has made a mathematical connection that was missed by human mathematicians. And so the AI was looking at two different problems, one in the theory of knots and the other in the study of symmetries, according to the journal Nature. I was struck, I was very struck at just how useful the machine learning tools could be as a guide for intuition, said Mark Lackenby at the University of Oxford, UK, one of the mathematicians who took part in the study. I was not expecting to have some of my preconceptions turned on their head. And so computer simulations and visualizations of objects such as knots have long helped mathematicians to better think about patterns that might be found within them, according to Jeffrey Weeks, who has been working in the field since the 1980s. But he notes, getting the computer to seek out patterns takes the research process to a qualitatively different level. And so looking at knots, a team including Lackenberry and his colleague Andras Juhens, um, I'm absolutely sure that I am mispronouncing that, um, looked at, um, they, sorry, the team consisted of um, Lackenby, Lackenby, mathematician Jordi Williamson at the University of Sydney in Australia, and Andras Johans, um, a colleague of Lackenberry's and fellow knot theorist. In order for the machine to have enough data to start learning, the team calculated several properties called invariance for millions of different knots. The researchers then contemplated which algorithm would be best for the work and settled on a technique called saliency maps that are often used in computer vision to identify regions with the most information in the image. Apparently that turns out to be grass on the border of the image. Um, but anyways, <laughs> saliency maps found not properties that were likely linked to each other, generated a formula that seemed to work for all cases tested, and then Lackenby and Johans developed a proof that the formula applied to a very large class of knots. The fact that the authors have proven that these invariants are related and in a remarkably direct way shows us, that, shows us there is something very fundamental that we in the field have yet to fully understand, says Mark Bittenham, a knot theorist at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln who frequently uses computational techniques. He notes that machine learning has been used to study knots before, but the ability to actually discover connections otherwise missed is unique. Williamson actually focused on symmetries. Symmetries that switch around finite sets of objects are found in several branches of maths, and they have been studied using various tools for many years. One of the ways that they do this is using graphs. But these graphs are not just like a bar chart. They are large abstract networks linking thousands of nodes. And so that's a little bit hard for people to be able to understand. Another way um, is through algebraic expressions called polynomials. Now, mathematicians have long believed that it would be possible to calculate the polynomials by using the graphs, but again, they couldn't make it work because the systems were just so complex. But with the help of DeepMind, the team saw that it should be possible to break down those graphs into smaller, more manageable parts, one of which has the structure of a higher dimensional cube or a hypercube. I was just blown away by how powerful this stuff is, says Williamson. Once the algorithm zeroed in on a pattern, it was able to guess very precisely which graphs and polynomials came from the same symmetries. How quickly the models were getting accuracy, that for me was just shocking, he said. I think I spent basically a year in the darkness just feeling the computers knew something that I didn't. 
And so um, Williamson worked on a conjecture, and it's still being uh, worked on and evaluated. Uh, conjectures can actually take a long time to be deciphered, uh, but they can lead to breakthroughs in the field. Um, and so no one, however, expects AI to take over the role of mathematicians, obviously, but they can be a tool for filling in some of the details and helping mathematicians to more quickly discard wrong theories. Williamson, for his part, likes the fact that th this work highlights a different aspects of mathematics. As mathematical researchers, we live in a world that is rich with intuition and imaginations, he says. Computers so far have served the dry side. The reason I love this work so much is that they are helping with the other side. So yeah, that is pretty cool. Um, and it's interesting to think about uh, higher order math. Uh, because it's it's a whole different animal from the sort of algebra and geometry you learn in um, high school. And, um, you know, that's just scraping the surface. But theoretical mathematics is right up there, I think, with theoretical physics in some ways as being a much more um, sort of esoteric field. <laughs> And um, as much as I love the idea of someone being a knot theorist, someone who just thinks about knots all day, um, I know that the like way that they actually do that is inconceivable to me because I'm just not um, – I've never uh, tried to apply myself to any kind of higher order math. I wasn't actually great at lower order math when I was in high school. Um, though I think that that was from a lack of, um, proper, uh, ways of teaching, uh, not to disparage my instructors, but I think that just, you know, I learned in an old way that wasn't as, um, intuitive as I think some of the math learning is these days, even though apparently parents complain about it because again, they learned in a different way. And, um, I think that it's interesting. Um, so yeah, um, I think that that is all the time we have for tonight. Um, next week we will talk apparently, um, I don't think I have enough time to finish the story. So next week we'll, uh, if we don't have to start off with COVID, um, let's hope we don't, but we will start off with talking about a vacuum sealed container, uh, that has been sitting around, uh, for the last 50 years unopened. So uh, do come back for that next week. All right. I hope that you all have a good weekend and please do come back for more evidence-based radio. Good night. Evidence-based radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.